0: Hello and welcome back to Talk Evidence with me, Helen McDonnell, Publication Ethics and Content Integrity Editor for BMJ Journals and a clinical editor on the BMJ. We've got a real mix of content for this month's episode. First, chronic pain. As prescribers move away from opioids, Juan finds an overview of systematic reviews asking whether antidepressants might help. Joe finds new research on the link between six healthy lifestyle markers and cognitive decline. If you're after ways to improve your antibiotic stewardship. The BMJ just published a trial to reduce prescribing among older people with suspected urinary tract infection, or UTI, and I'll fill you in on the details. Juan got stuck in a Twitter sphere at least for a little while and followed a rabbit hole back to a paper updating the evidence on masks to reduce the spread of respiratory viruses. And finally, an international group of researchers traced the health claims made about infant formula milk back to the evidence or lack of it. What an episode. I'm back from a few days away, so I'm glad to have our regular guests, Juan and Joe, to guide us through it all.
1: Hi, this is Joe, uh, professor at Yale, in the School of Medicine and School of Public Health, and an associate research editor at the BMJ.
2: Hi, I'm Juan, I'm a family physician and researcher here at the Heine University in Dusseldorf, and editor-in-chief of BMJ Evidence Based Medicine.
0: Right, everyone, let's get to our first paper then, which is this overview of systematic reviews on antidepressants uh, to treat chronic pain, which is obviously a very common problem. Not necessarily very many treatment options in terms of therapeutics on the table. Uh, Juan, tell us, uh, what did you like about this paper?
2: Well, one of the things I liked about this paper was that, um, in general, when we think about antidepressants for chronic pain, um, we consider them to be adjuvant treatments so when pain uh, chronifies and you, you have different tools uh, it's just another tool that you can use. But if you think about it from the class of of drugs, um, it this effect may not be the same for all conditions and for all the drugs that are within this class and this review analyzed a large body of evidence across conditions and sort of clarified a little bit for what we have most certain certainty and for those conditions for which we have less certainty.
0: Okay, well, tell us what they found then when you chop it up by different drugs and different conditions.
2: So um, they included twenty six systematic review with a hundred and. 56 unique trials, and uh, the readers uh, slash listeners. If you if you look at table two, it's a very nice summary. Well, y-
0: I don't think they will find. I think they're just going to rely on you. Well,
2: well, but just for those <laughs> who, <laughs> who want ex- a little bit extra. Numbers. But for the geeks, yeah. so you can go there. Uh, so there's a there's a, um there's a nice table that says conditions for which antidepressants show evidence of efficacy, and you we can see that for example for chronic back pain, postoperative Pain, fibromyalgia, and neuropathic pain. You can see that there is um, moderate certainty of evidence that these drugs, especially SNRIs such as duloxetine, uh, may reduce um, chronic pain. And for other conditions, perhaps there's the certainty is lower. And in Table 3, for um, there are conditions for which perhaps we know that these, main, these drugs, for example, SSRIs, may not be effective. For example, for, for the same condition, back pain, fibromyalgia, functional dyspepsia, or no cardiac chest, chest pain, um, this may not work. And... Um, and interestingly, they also looked at adverse events, and um, which is in one of the appendices, and it's something to consider because uh, chronic pain also—it's—it's um, it's difficult to treat with drugs that create adverse events because they need to be used chronically, and these conditions, these drugs are also associated with uh, adverse events. So the balance is very tight, especially if you look at the effect estimates uh, of. Uh oh, yes. Tell us about those. Um, so they did something very clever. They standardized all the measurements f- to the standard uh, scale to 0 to 100. And, um, and if you look at some example, back pain and prosperity pain is a reduction, an average reduction in 5.3 or 7.3 points, which if you think of a 0 to 100 scale, is not such a big um, effect size. Mm-hmm. So... Um, the balance of benefits and harms is tight and, and, and perhaps it would make a, a greater difference for people who are suffering from severe pain, uh, which, in which perhaps adding something means it's, it's better than, than nothing if the effects are tolerable, the adverse events are tolerable. So um, that's a little bit of a summary of the paper.
0: Joe, what did you make of it? Well,
2: you know, I I think this is a valuable study
1: because pain is so difficult to treat clinically. And, you know, with the goal of essentially moving away from opioid-based treatments, uh, you know, antidepressants uh, and their like may offer potential advantages, you know, if, if they are effective. To me, the biggest disappointment was how few of these reviews actually had substantial numbers of studies? It's a very sort of understudied area. I think 11 of the 26 reviews had one or two studies. Only five had 10 or more. So you're really getting a sense that you know while there's so
0: you got almost more reviews than trials. <laughs> e-
1: exactly right. So you know th- there's strong aggregated evidence around postoperative pain, around back pain and sciatica right, or around depression with comorbid chronic pain, but much less and much more flimsy evidence around fibromyalgia and chronic migraines, uh, depending on sort of which uh, antidepressants were being tested. And of course, you know, Juan brought up the importance of, you know, safety being studied, and uh, that's really critical because, you know, a bunch of these were looking at, you know, tricyclics and, you know, MA, you know monamine oxidase inhibitors, which are known to have you know, be much less tolerable than a typical SSRI or an SNRI. So, you know, I think this is useful. I hope that it prompts and stimulates, you know, actual better trials that could be aggregated because, you know, we really do need alternatives uh, to, you know, to opioids and, and which you know, which obviously have substantial safety concerns associated with their use. <laughs>
0: Joe, let's come to one of your papers next. You'll always want to spot an interesting observational study for us, although this isn't one of your mega database studies that you spotted for us today. It's about healthy lifestyles and memory. Tell us a bit about it.
1: Well, Helen, I, I like all studies, I, not just big <laughs> mega database studies. We can learn from, from many different types of studies. And this, this is actually, I think, it combines a lot of sort of what we would you know, high interest areas uh, for the BMJ, right? It talks. It's a nice longitudinal cohort uh, from patients in Japan, uh, in China, the China Cognition and Aging Study, or the COAST study. So it has good data over long, you know, longitudinal measurements on uh, different uh, aspects of people's behavior, their health. You know, in this case, cognition and uh, measurements of, of uh, cognitive uh, assessments like the Mini Mental Status Exam and, and others. Um, but what I, was also kind of the sort of rings the bell for the BMJ—it's looking at memory decline over time, which is obviously uh, really important. We're constantly trying to figure out, as our many uh, you know populations are aging around the world, um, how to manage uh, memory um, and caring for these individuals as as memories do decline and people become more dependent on others and caregivers for. For uh, you know, for activities of daily living and their shopping and all blah 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 all that other stuff, but also they look at um, essentially health behaviors and how these all interact together, right? So you know the BMJ, you know we are constantly trying to identify ways for people to live healthier lives, not necessarily relying on medicines or other you know healthcare interventions, but what can we do independently? And so this was uh, you know kind of puts it all together, and in this case. Um, They have this very large population of patients, uh, more than uh, 20-some-odd thousand, uh, if memory serves. Um, It's almost 30,000. And they followed people who uh, were over the age of 60 and had no evidence of uh, Alzheimer's disease or cognitive decline. They had all undergone full evaluations. And interestingly, they all underwent genetic testing. Uh, so they identified individuals who were what are known as APOELL carriers, which confers a higher risk of developing Alzheimer's disease over time. So they followed these people over 10 years with, uh, you know, essentially cognitive measurements um, using the auditory verbal learning test, which is used to assess memory function every couple of years. And the average age was about 70. And uh, they also looked at six healthy lifestyle factors, whether they were eating a healthy diet, whether they were engaged in regular physical exercise, whether they had active social contact, active cognitive activity, along with whether they were never or former smokers or never drinkers. So all things that are within your control. uh, And of course, you know, we have to be worried about Um, confounding because you know we know that people who follow these healthy lifestyle behaviors are probably healthy in other ways too but nevertheless they grouped individuals into whether they uh, had sort of unfavorable lifestyle uh, behaviors so zero or one of those factors average lifestyles which were two or three of those factors or favorable healthy lifestyles which include up four to all six of those behaviors and what they showed First of all, what I think is very interesting is that memory memory decline was uh, actually kind of substantial among all 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 individuals who were followed over the ten year follow up. Everyone's memory got a little bit worse, Um, and so you know that's I think just kind of useful in terms of you know when using these objective assessments, just to know that you know that that is taking place. But those individuals with a favorable healthy lifestyle behavior um, had slower memory decline uh, than those with an unfavorable healthy lifestyle uh, behaviors. And, and was that, that in we- a
0: marked way?
1: Yes, that was statistically different. Um, yeah. you know, it, they're, they're reporting it using a challenging measure to interpret because it's all based on <laughs> Z scores, which are standardized measures on this uh, you know auditory verbal learning test. But okay. it, it's statistically different. it's appreciable, the difference. And I think what's also most interesting is uh, that difference was higher when you compare favorable to unfavorable than when you compare average to unfavorable. So both showed statistically different declines in memory. Um, And it was true regardless of whether people were APOE carriers. So this suggests that even with people who have a genetic predetermined R- greater risk of developing cognitive decline having these healthy lifestyles was associated with less um, decline so was was a, you know a little bit more protective than not having it so I, I think this you know lots of people may have questions about a study uh, you know a paper like this and what does it mean you know obviously you know eat a healthy diet engage in social contact and, and otherwise active cognitive activity. But um, so you do what you can, uh, even though, you know, we as we all age, our memory declines, including mine.
0: <laughs> I feel like I just got a little insight into a clinical consultation with you, Joe, and I feel motivated to be healthy. Um, Juan, any thoughts from you on this one?
2: Well, I think it's uh, good to highlight because um, the 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 interaction between genetic factors and and environmental factors or, or the, perhaps one would say that when we we say healthy lifestyle um it's uh, I always find it uh, challenging when we say lifestyle because it feels like it depends on what the, what people do and it and we know that a lot of this has to do with the environment we live in, and mm-hmm. uh, and and I instead of thinking about how how we can say individuals to follow these six items, uh, health, lifestyle factors to improve their cognitions, what can we do as a society so it's easier for people to to have a healthier diet or, or, or move a little bit more or engage in social contact, especially after the pandemic, right? And uh, um, so, yeah, uh, perhaps... A, 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 Prefer if we move the focus from from the individual consultations. Although it is helpful if an individual patient asks what they can do to to prevent uh, a cognitive decline, even under unfavorable circumstances, uh, such as having a, one of the uh, carrier mutations in the IPO E4.
1: I totally agree with you on. I, I I really, this is not obviously a trial testing. You know whether people engaged in these behaviors and whether they had sl- lower decline, right? And so. Population-based strategies are key, but one of the things that I do think is really valuable is the genetic testing component of the study, in particular because people do take-home genetic tests all the time now, Mm. you know, like 23andMe and Ancestry and all of these things, right? And so they're getting their quote-unquote genetic information information. And I think reacting to it as if it's deterministic. Mm. Um, And that's because the kind of the probability of developing disease is hard to hold in your head as a, you know, potentially as a non-scientist, like, you know, having being a carrier is not... Mean that you're going to develop the disease. It means you have an increased risk of developing the disease. And there's a whole host of other things out there, from you know other genetic risks to environmental exposures, and and along with the kind of individual health behaviors as Juan was describing, right? So, um, now, to me, you know that is also an important component of this study, which is to say, like you know your 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 genes, your genetics, do not determine. Um, you know, what's going to happen to you from a perspective of, you know, what diseases you're going to, you know, get diagnosed with in your life, but they play a role.
0: People with cognitive impairment often develop symptoms suggestive of having a urinary tract infection or UTI. Um, And so I thought you might be interested to hear more about this trial. So this is a pragmatic, parallel cluster randomised control trial, lots of very large words there for you, with uh, five months of baseline period and then a seven-month follow-up period. And it looked at 38 clusters of general practices and... Um, and older adult care organisations across various countries, uh, Poland, the Netherlands, Norway and Sweden from 2019 until 2021. And they were aiming to evaluate whether antibiotic prescribing for suspected urinary tract infections in frail older adults could be reduced through a multifaceted antibiotic stewardship intervention. So that intervention broadly involved a decision tool for appropriate antibiotic prescribing, supported by a toolbox of educational materials. And they did some sessions um, about education, evaluation and local tailoring of the intervention. And then the control uh, groups got um, usual care. And the researchers decided to examine um, the number of antibiotic prescriptions for suspected urinary tract infection. That was the thing they were most interested in per person per year. And then the secondary outcomes they looked at included uh, complications. So things like admission to hospital, um, all-cause hospital admissions, all-cause mortality within three weeks after the infection and all-cause mortality over the um, study period. So amongst the intervention group there were 54 prescriptions in 202 person years and amongst the usual care group there were 121 prescriptions in 209 person years. Um, Give me a moment. So when you turn that into a fancy rate ratio you can, you can kind of predict that there's quite a big difference there. It's 0.42 rate ratio with a confidence interval of 0.26 to 0.68. And there were no marked differences between the intervention and control groups in terms of the complications and harms that they were measuring. So overall, the researchers decided that this was quite a good intervention to safely reduce antibiotic prescribing amongst this population. What do you think of that, you two?
1: I thought this was a really interesting study. I mean, uh, antibiotic stewardship is obviously of critical importance. And this is a population of pretty susceptible patients, you know, frail, older adults, age 70 or older. Um, You know, the average age in the actual trial ended up being, you know, above 85.
0: It's quite old, isn't it? it.
1: (laughs) Yeah, so the fact that they were able to essentially have Antibiotic prescriptions for suspected UTIs without any evidence of worsening complications or other problems—you uh, know—that's very promising, right? And uh, you know that that to me suggests that this this you, you know the utility of this decision tool, along with the educational and evaluation sessions. The question is always, you know, when you have a multifaceted component like this, is you know, can it be? You know deployed wider right it takes and which was the more, magic ingredient right and it's hard right because you know you can't ask you know it's very hard to find funding to support the you know implementation across a wide range of you know care homes or practices and you know to, how to make sure that uh you know, it's it's all done well and appropriately, but it does raise awareness, and um, hopefully, the decision tool can be leveraged by independent practitioners around the world um, to to reduce antibiotic prescription.
0: And it perhaps gives you that little bit of confidence as a as a listener or reader of this work. It can feel difficult, can't it, when you're you're in a care home and you're on a visit and you're trying to restrain yourself from prescribing an antibiotic, and sometimes um, e- even though you know you, you could do so things tip you over the edge towards doing it and and maybe little pieces of work like this give you increasing confidence that those people are unlikely to come to harm Juan, any thoughts from you?
2: Well I also find it very interesting that the, the countries that participated, um, many of these countries especially Norway and Sweden have been working on, on reducing antibiotics prescription for a long time and if you look at and if you look at the disaggregated uh, results they also found improved reductions in in prescriptions so that that also highlights that there's always room for improvement right and uh, and uh, and i found that very optimistic and this um they, they the the way they designed the intervention uh, for also for for those uh, who are actually going to read the article that, that, that the uh, it's very it's a very well um, uh, written paper because they they thoroughly describe this complex intervention and how they thought about it and and this participatory approach of 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 involving people makes those uh especially when you're think about the implementation right because try stop doing something requires a lot of buy-in from the people that are being the, the the intervention is going to be implemented so uh the way they they did that i think it was the key to the to the success
0: so I think you should revise your statement of earlier that people should go and read Table 2 and that other paper and we should say if you're going to read one thing based on our podcast today, it should be the the implementation information uh, for this intervention. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like with this item we're going to move from something which felt quite... Um, universally accepted to something which has been quite a thorny uh, area of discussion which is around the physical interventions to interrupt or reduce the spread of respiratory viruses and there's an updated Cochrane systematic review which have been attracting uh, some attention on Twitter Um, and it's interesting because this systematic review had been published previously but the authors have added some new trials um, adding evidence which amassed over the pandemic For these physical interventions, including masks. So we thought it would be interesting to discuss this uh, piece on the podcast a little bit more, particularly since masks are still used by some individuals and also in some healthcare settings. Um, Juan, do you want to give us a little summary of this paper? It's a systematic review, so it should be right up your street.
2: So um, this is a huge endeavour. The, 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 um, this update incorporated new 11 new trials... Um, that amounts to seventy-eight randomized control trials, so it would be quite difficult to summarize it in a couple of minutes. But perhaps I just wanted to highlight um, one of the comparisons. That the review has many comparisons, many but different types of evaluation. That but the main comparison has to do with the use of mask compared to no the no use of mask. Um, and this involves um, a series of randomized controlled trials, especially for the outcome of viral respiratory infections. They included nine trials with 276,000 participants. And um, I guess what it created a lot of controversy um, online had to do with the findings that the the rate of viral respiratory illness was um similar in both the groups of mass regular mass use versus no mass use um with a r- relative risk of zero point nine five uh, confidence interval point eighty four to one point o nine pretty tight confidence interval as well um so there are many readings uh, to this that this is a very polarizing subject. Perhaps what I wanted to highlight about this is that there are different types of questions rela- related to masks. Uh, we know that perhaps masks uh, work. Uh, if you have a well-designed mask and you use it, of course, it, it is, they're going to filter the, um, the respiratory virus and they're going to offer uh, bidirectional protection, especially the high uh, the, those that um, uh, have high filtration systems. But perhaps the question that this review is trying to answer is not that much whether the particular mask physically works, but as to whether the implementation of of an intervention of of masking works in a community and hospital settings. And per, perhaps these trials have had difficulty in proving that uh, that they were effective in reducing transmission. And um, and And those two questions the, the 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 actual effect of the individual intervention compared to the implementation um it's very challenging to communicate and has created a lot of division through the pandemic and the question is still relevant we're still masking in in healthcare settings uh, in a different way that it was before the pandemic in primary care usually you don't you do not you wear masks and now in in at least here in germany um and, and perhaps you can update in the uk and joe in the us but um, it is still widely used and it was something that it was not there in 2019 and um and, and perhaps uh, I, I'm not entirely sure whether we, we should revisit that or not. But uh, there there are places where this decision is being revisited, and this review puts the evidence uh, open to debate. And of course, it it also depends a lot on 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 the. Um, the situation in the, in the pandemic, the transmission rates, what are the trade-offs of people in each of these settings? So there's a lot of, more, a lot of things that play into this decision beyond the the single point estimate of a tra- of a meta-analysis. Um, so, but yeah, we could not not comment on this review.
0: I really like that answer, Juan. And as you say, with masks, it it's so unlikely that um, there is going to be a single truth like the answer might vary by setting, by circumstances, maybe by the type of respiratory infection or the type of mask. Um, and it is interesting, isn't it, that despite the new evidence, there is still quite a bit of uncertainty, um, particularly around, around um, the key issues like mask use um, in this systematic review. And the authors call for more evidence Including trials, um, but also ecological studies with um, adjustment for confounding factors and more work looking at different fabrics. Uh, Joe, what are your thoughts?
1: No, I completely agree with you. You know, uh, layered on top of the, you know, the efforts, the misinformation efforts that have been pushed and the sort of skepticism around, you know, government intervention and, you know, uh, my own individual freedoms and the complicated nature of it all, you know, without a doubt like you know for my entire clinical training we used masks when going into rooms with people who we you know knew had highly infectious respiratory viruses and we took them off when we walked out of the room right we used n95s when we walked into people's rooms who had tuberculosis and we used you know you know you know engineering approaches to also reduce airflow from that room to any other room right and so you know it, it's not as if this is new thinking, right? The question though becomes like, so where, you know, might you use masks in these sort of community level pragmatic RCTs, you know, aren't finding major differences, but that doesn't mean you wouldn't want to use them in a healthcare setting where there are more people who are likely to have highly infectious respiratory viruses. Maybe, you know, I remember when I was a you know, a resident and spending, you know, 80 hours in the hospital, you know, I constantly had colds. Maybe I wouldn't have been so sick and so weary if I just worn a mask all day instead of only when I went into those people's rooms. Right. So maybe in certain settings, they're more valuable. You know, maybe we should be doing a pragmatic RCT of mask wearing, you know, in religious uh, churches and synagogues where people often sing out loud right next to each other. And so, you know, the, tra- the chance of, you know, air, you know, respiratory transmission is higher, but maybe it's not so necessary when, you know, you're sitting on a train and no one's really speaking loudly and you're just kind of, you know, moving along. So they're, they're interesting questions. And, you know, that doesn't mean that individuals uh, shouldn't continue to wear masks if it helps them feel safer, more protective. It is clearly a low-cost, low-risk intervention to put a mask over your face, right? And, you know, I think that it's been obviously, uh, unfortunately, controversial. Um, But that doesn't mean that what governments did, particularly before the vaccine, and we had no idea about how to manage at the population-level transmission, uh, wasn't the right thing to do then.
0: Sticking with things that might cause controversy, we're moving from masks to infant formula milks um, and to an interesting paper published in the BMJ, which studies the health claims made by some of their manufacturers. I should, before we start this issue, um, declare an interest that avid readers of the journal, I don't know that we've mentioned it that much on the podcast, may be aware that the BMJ has taken a stand on infant milks previously and since 2019 we've resolved not to carry advertising advertising. Um, for these products. Uh, Joe, tell us a bit more about this paper.
1: Yeah, I I think this is such a fascinating kind of collaborative study, which was done, you know, across um, 15 different countries, Australia, Canada, Germany, India, Italy, Japan, Nigeria, Norway, Pakistan, Russia, Saudi Arabia, South Africa, Spain, the UK and the US.
0: It's an incredibly eclectic mix, isn't it?
1: Yeah. And, you know, a great collective that is representative of kind of like what's happening in the world. And what they were doing was reviewing health and nutrition claims that were, you know, on the infant formula products, right, in order to evaluate the validity of the evidence used to substantiate those claims. So we're all now, you know, accustomed to walking into a grocery store or maybe a health food store, and you see a claim on a food product, like, you know, we'll make your brain... It will improve brain health, or you know, better for cardiovascular disease. And actually, those claims are regulated. Uh, you know, in the United States, they're regulated by the FDA, In other countries they're regulated by those. Uh, you know, national regulators. And they're in order to make a health and nutrition claim like that, this is different than just sort of listing an ingredient, right? But in yeah. order to make a claim, you're supposed to support rigorous evidence. You know, that the sort of the, the scientific community would agree you know, would be, you know, considered strong evidence. And in this uh, study, you know, across all of those countries, uh, they identified 757 infant formula products. Each had uh, at least one claim and the median was two. Um, Mm -hmm. And of these um, 608 products with uh, more than one claim, one or more claims, the most common claim types were help support development of brain and our eyes and our nervous system, right, strengthens support of a healthy immune system, helps, supports growth and development, right. Anyone who's listening, who's a, who's a parent can, you know, empathize with, you know, like you want to give your kid, like if you're gonna have to give them formula for whatever reason, you want to give them the stuff that's gonna make them smart, right, make them healthy, right, that's, that's what we want to do. When they looked into, you know, how all of these claims, Uh, Essentially, what they found was that um, the vast majority were unsubstantiated, right? So, you know, 560 sort of unique claims all referred to varying numbers of sort of types of edits from unregistered clinical trials to kind of review articles and non-peer review publications. So most were unsubstantiated. Of the 107 that referred uh, to uh clinical trials there were 58 unique trials but 46 of these trials so even like of the claims that a, like have a registered clinical trial to support its use 46 of these so 80 percent, were at high risk of bias when you actually looked at the trial in terms of its interpretation and what it meant so you know what I'll, this isn't so going to be surprising. This, I'm sure we would find the same thing if we were looking at health and nutrition claims on any type of product. But you know, the infant formula is kind of a special type of caution is warranted, given the cost, the price. You know what we you know the the susceptibility of uh, of parents to, to these types of claims. So t- to me. Uh, that's in part why this is such an important article. Because I, I, I do think that our, our state regulators need to do a better job of ensuring that if if a, if a company is going to make a claim like this, that it's based on uh, stronger evidence.
0: That's very helpful, Joe. Um, Juan, you look like you were itching to say
2: something. Um, yeah, well, I was um, listening to the numbers, and um, I was just thinking about um, when I practice... Uh, um, I work in a primary care uh, facility in a low resource setting in, in the outskirts of Buenos Aires, and um, we had a, a very interesting situation in which um, people, perhaps with low income uh, low income households, sometimes they invested uh, money in formula, uh, one of the special formulas. Is, and, um, and if you follow, for example, the guidelines to transition from breastfeeding to formula, um, they have, uh, they offer very uh, various low cost uh, possibilities, uh, including using cow's milk and uh, and so on. And but yet, in, even in these low income households, many uh, parents cho- chose to save up their money and buy the the, the 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 that formula, in spite of our best advice, trying to tell them don't spend all your budget on this. This is a lot of money, and some of these formulas were, were very expensive. But there's a there there's a strong pressure for parents to to go because they think they're they're just trying to give their best to their children, and it's such a large market share because I mean we're all we were all babies sometimes right so it's a large market share for for food products and it's a little bit disappointing or disheartening what effect does does, uh, this have, especially uh, when they're playing with the expectations and when the claims are, for example, for... Uh, um, neuro the uh, development of the nerve, uh, n- n- ner- nervous system. So those those are things that uh, stick to parents. It's very important. They they mm. want their child to to have the best development possible. So all of those claims are are going directly into the hearts of the parents, and they're very um, uh, misleading. So yeah, I was a little bit uh well, I, I this sort of uh. Confirm what I've, I've I've seen in practice, but it was much much worse than I imagined.
0: And I guess finally, I would add that um, we recognise that there is a group of infants and parents who choose or need formula milk for a whole multitude of reasons. Um, but this is, you know, there is a genuine public health concern which which we share. Um, which is about undermining the general message that human milk is best where that option is feasible well that's all we have time for this month i hope you've enjoyed our eclectic mix of content you can subscribe wherever you get your podcast from and rate us do drop us an email if you've got an evidence question that you'd like us to answer Until next month, it's goodbye from me.
1: Goodbye from me. Goodbye for now.
0: Goodbye for now. I like that, Joe. Take care out there.